from the great gifts you've given us, we give back to you this small portion. And we pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Today we will be in Matthew chapter 28. For those of you that thought St. Patrick's Day coming up, he's going to do that same St. Patrick's sermon again. He does it every year. You're not wrong. But as my kids have noticed, even though it's the same sermon, it's not exactly the same sermon. I'm never going to give you exactly the same sermon, but here's the thing. When we start to think about outreach and we start to think about evangelism and we start to think about ministry, sometimes there are events that have happened in Christian history that are good to pay attention to, not because we believe in saints or feast days or that, you know, you can call up St. Patrick and get a little extra grace on a busy day, but just because as far as an evangelist that had a powerful effect on the entire world, who's better? He converted an entire country. How many of you have done that? Right? Super impressive. These days we've got our Billy Grahams and guys like that that we give a special status and respect because they put in the hours. Right? Well, it's not the first time, frankly. So, you know, I, I'm not on the church calendar and I don't do that stuff. You know, some of uh, the guys in our denomination do and some entire denominations do. I'm not really into that, but I am into paying attention. Here's the thing. I think it was about 400, uh, between 400 and 480, there was a guy, and his name was Patrick. And you know the whole story, but do you? Because he wasn't Irish. He was Scottish. And he was raised a Roman citizen. And about 400... In 80 A.D. or there around, uh, he was out playing on the beach. He was a boy of about 8 to 10 years old. And pirates from Ireland, I know what you Irish people are thinking. There were never Irish pirates. Well, there were, right? Y'all wasn't always Christians. Irish pirates came over, and they were just scooping people up off the coast, and they captured him as a young boy. His father was a major administrator of one of the Roman towns in Scotland. And they took him, and they took him over to Ireland as a slave. And for the next 10 to 15 years, he served as a slave. He slept with the animals. He had been a rich boy. You know how rich boys are. He was a rich boy, and then he was taken to the lowest possible status of humiliation in a far-off nation, where he basically took care of the sheep and the animals. But he never forgot the resonant images of his Christian faith. He had been raised in the church, baptized on the eighth day. He had read the scriptures, and he remembered them, and he used to sing them to himself. Even while he learned, not the Gaelic, but the Irish language of the time. Now with this, you have to remember that it's not the first time anybody sent missionaries to Ireland. Now, they used to spread, the Irish used to spread this rumor because they didn't want those missionaries coming over and ruining everything. So they used to say they ate them all for dinner. There's no actual evidence of that, but that's what they used to say. So people were scared to go there for missions and stuff. But several did come over, and they killed them. And the ones they didn't kill, they used to strip naked and send back on a raft. In the same time, he was raised there in and among them, and he learned the language, and his heart started to be overburdened for the well-being of these people. Here's an entire people just to skip across a small stretch of water that don't know Christ. 
And so it started to burn inside of him, and he started to pray for even those that had imprisoned him all those years. Now, when he was about 18 to 20 or somewhere around there, you can take this story as you like it. Uh, he said that he heard a voice from God saying, it's time to go home. Get up and go home. And he said he just got up off of his place in the barn where he used to sleep, and he walked 200 miles to the coast where he walked right up the ramp onto a ship and sat down, and they sailed him across to England where he was immediately taken in by the monks and the priests and immediately took vows, and he was ordained a priest there after a couple of years of study. And he told them, I want to go back to Ireland. My heart is bound to the people of Ireland. And the church told him, no. We sent other guys there that are so much better than you, and they didn't have any luck. What good are you going to do? But you know how they did it in those days, right? They had a big ship show up, and a guy with a big hat covered in gold would come out with his stick and tell them all they're heathens. We still try that once in a while. Still doesn't work. Ye heathens, repent. Uh, you know. So he went anyway. And he went under the ban of the church for a while because he went anyway. And he walked onto the beach in the clothes of the Irish, speaking the tongue of the Irish with respect for Irish customs and understanding and Irish culture, and he ate Irish food, and eventually he was taken to the king of one of the small cities on the south coast of Ireland. And they talked for three days, and eventually it all came down to a couple of doctrines that people just tend to have a hard time with. The deity of Christ, the resurrection, and the trinity. Because, hey, they're the hard ones, right? So, uh, that Christ was fully God and fully man in their pagan religion. They had already had God-men. They kind of got that, right? Even Thor was a God-man they had something to do with. Then they get to the place of the resurrection from the dead. How can a man be raised from the dead? And he talked to them and he said, if God can create the heavens and the earth, which you already believe in a God that created the heavens and the earth, can't he raise a man from the dead? They got to the Trinity and he just couldn't conceive of it. He couldn't be a Trinitarian Christian. And so, you know, the story is, he brought out the clover, right? The three-leaf clover. It's one clover leaf, it's one strand, but it always has three leaves. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one God that's expressed in three persons. Always three, but always one. Now, the serious theologians among you can critique that down to a fine point, but basically it was effective, right? We have these analogies that we use of these things that are helpful and the king was converted to Christianity. And here's the way they did it in those days. The next day, everybody in his kingdom was a Christian. If they didn't want to be, it was like... So, you know, uh, however you get there, right? So they were all Christians, and he went on from place to place, and he spent the next 40 to 50 years doing ministry there, going from place to place, calmly arguing with them, because they were educated and rational men, but they were pagans. Now, they say, you can make your judgment about this, that by the time he ended his ministry and died, the entire island, the entire nation of Ireland, as we call it today, everybody was a Christian. Within just that one lifetime. Because he was bold and strong and sent by God. At the same time, nothing has changed. You have to remember that at that time in history, their understanding of the gospel and their understanding of the Bible was that Jesus had bled and died on the earth. But because his blood had touched 
the soil of the earth, old terra firma, the entire earth was claimed for Jesus Christ. Now they knew there were different politics and different languages and different people here and there, and they respected all of those things. But that the entire earth was going to bow the knee to King Jesus was inevitable. It's just how long is it going to take? You might think to yourself, well, it's been 2,000 years now, but now more than half of the people on the face of the earth in one way or another call themselves by the name of Christ. The success has been unimaginable, especially with Asia and with Africa. Christianity had very early inroads. Do you remember the first person that's like publicly baptized in the book of Acts and they make a big deal about it? What do we call him by nickname? The Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian church still exists today in Ethiopia. I know they're surrounded by Islam, but the church is still there, 2,000 years old, and it's strong. And in Asia, early, there's a tradition that in India, Thomas himself, remember doubting Thomas? He was one of those ones that doubted if Jesus rose from the dead, even though he had seen all those things in his earthly ministry. And he said, unless I can stick my finger in his hands and touch his sides, I won't believe that he rose from the dead. And so Jesus shows up. Totally awkward Jesus moment, right? He's like, well, uh, Thomas, got some hands for you. And it doesn't say that Thomas touched him. I wouldn't have touched. But he fell down at his feet and he worshipped him, it says which means he knew with whom he had to do. The one that he had doubted had truly risen from the dead. Now, church tradition tells us, church tradition, yeah, that Thomas himself was run through with 23 spears in India preaching the gospel, and the church was established there at that time. And a remnant has always there existed, but now it's exploding. The world's going to look very different in 50 years. You might be thinking to yourself, well, things around here ain't so good. I don't know if you watch TV, but things ain't so good. Things have been not so good before, and God has redeemed it. Never think to yourself God is not involved because things do not look so good. I don't know how intense the persecution in our culture is going to get before the Holy Spirit bursts forth and changes it all, but it's happened before, and it's happened before on American soil, the First and Second Great Awakening and many other things. But at the same time, the gospel is exploding all over the world. What are you going to do 50 or 100 years from now when you're dealing with not a Christian country or a Christian community or trying to keep Mississippi Christian, but you're dealing with a Christian world? Now, for the last 100 years to 200 years, for the most part, we all understand that the leadership of Christianity and the evangelism from Christianity has mainly come from the United States, right? Part of that has been since we've had the freedom to worship, true religion has been strong. In the places where you don't have the freedom of religion, it's harder for it to be strong. But at the same time, we're going to move to a place where they are sending their missionaries here to us. Now, you all know that happens, right? I think there's something like four to 5,000 South Korean missionaries in the United States right now that were sent from churches in South Korea to help us out with our problem. And I've met many of the missionaries that have come over from Africa that have come to the United States, and they work in the African communities. And they build churches, and many of them, a lot of them, are in the PCA. It's all happening right now, but at the same time, what about us? Now, I've told you guys many times, this, this thing is true. 90% of the ministry of this church does not happen on Sunday morning. We get together for an hour 
maybe two. We do the formal service that's ordained by God. This is it for the people to come together and hear the word of God and sing songs of praise. But it all happens at other times. That's where the work is done. I want you to feel free to engage yourself in these things and to actually express your gifts and talents, God-given gifts and talents, at other times besides Sunday morning, because this is just basically the time for us to get together. All the heavy lifting is done at other times. If it weren't so, there'd be something wrong with us. If the vast majority of what we do as a church happened here on Sunday morning for an hour or two, and the other six days of the week nothing was happening, there would be something horribly wrong, right? So at the same time, we go to this. I want to read you something here. This is one of the prayers of Patrick. Now, Patrick was a good Presbyterian. I know that's a controversial statement. That's my understanding of it. You know, and once he wrote a poem, and this poem was recited in churches for a thousand years afterward. He said, I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through the belief in threeness, through the confession of the oneness of the creation of the Creator. Does it sound familiar? We just sang it today. Well, a lot of you are thinking, why are we singing this weird song, right? It's this entire thing put to music. So it's traditional to sing it around this time. The same way it's traditional to sing Christmas hymns around Christmas. It's not the gospel, but it's, it's fun. I arise today through the strength of Christ with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion and his burial, through the strength of the resurrection and his ascension, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise through the strength of the love of the cherubim, in obedience to the angels, in the service of the archangels, in hope of the resurrection to meet and reward, in the prayers of the patriarchs, in the predictions of the prophets, in the preaching of the apostles, in the faith of the confessors, in the innocence of holy virgins, in deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of sun, brilliance of moon, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of wind, the depth of the sea, the stability of the earth, and the firmness of the rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's ear to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me. God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to secure me. Against the snares of devils, against the temptations of vices, against the inclinations of nature, against everyone who shall wish ill of me, both near and far, alone and in a crowd. I summon today all of these powers between me and all these evils and against every cruel and merciless power that may oppose my body and soul, against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of the heathen, against false laws of heretics, against craft of idolatry, against the spells of witches and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that endangers man's body and soul, Christ protect me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that we may come to an abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right hand and Christ on my left, Christ in each breath, in length and in height, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness and through the confession of the oneness of the creator 
of all creation. Salvation is of the Lord, and salvation is of the Lord, and salvation is of Christ, and my, may my salvation, O Lord, be ever with thee. It's an okay sermon, right? That's the way they used to preach 1,500 years ago. You can see why the guy converted a nation, right? He was not the kind to hold back. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 28. But he had also been given great skill. Now, Matthew 28 is the very last thing said in the book of Matthew. It's not the story of Jesus' life. It's the culmination of Jesus' life and what he proclaimed at the end of his earthly ministry. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, that's a heavy statement, right? They did not respect him as a great and noble leader that just happened to have this strangeness of rising from the dead. They worshipped him as God. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're not at the end of the age yet, you know. This is that age. It's continuing right on just as he began it. But notice the way that he expects them to be baptized. We've talked about several times in the women's Bible study on Friday how the baptism of John was not Christian baptism. It's impossible that it be Christian baptism. Kind of the last person baptized in it was Christ, but it was a baptism of repentance. And when the disciples of John, who had gotten the baptism of John, came to the apostles, the apostles re-baptized them into the name of Christ. So we understand that it wasn't that. At the same time, into the name of the Father, and the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. That Apostles' Creed that you did this morning, what page was it on? It was 8... Let's turn to 845. Now, we talked about this a little this morning in the Investigations into Graceview class. One of the main questions that we get is why we do this creed. We do this creed to affiliate ourselves with some church other than ourselves. If you want to know the essence of Presbyterianism, to some people it's not interesting. They just go to church, right? But it used to be that if it didn't say Presbyterian on the door, people would not go to that church. Here's a couple of things about Presbyterianism. Number one, every member of the church has rights and duties. You know, the little, the little things you do by representative uh, uh, elections, right? But the big things, everyone in the church has rights. Did you know that every member of this church owns this church. I don't own it. The elders don't own it. You have an invested life within the context of this church. At the same time, we are part of a larger church. We're not autonomous. We're not by ourselves. Another church can, with real rights and powers, come here and correct us if we're wrong. And we can correct them. Tomorrow, we're having our presbytery meeting where representatives of all the churches, just like it was in the Bible, will come together and deal with any issues of controversy or theology. And then there's a national meeting where all the churches around the world will come together that are within this body to deal with those kind of things. So the essence of Presbyterianism is, number one, the form of government where you are the people and you actually have power as a priesthood of all believers and our connection with the church in history. We're not autonomous. 
We're not on my own, on our own. None of you here and all of you here could ordain me. We had to call on people from other churches to make that known. Our connection with the church through this creed is also part of that. I know our official documents are the Westminster Confession of Faith and Larger and Shorter Catechism, which are much more detailed than this, but here's the thing about this. This connects us with every real and true church in history for the last 2,000 years. I'm going to go by and not talk about he descended into hell or the Holy Catholic Church clause that everybody wants to talk about. <laughs> because we can talk about that. But here's the thing. Look at the makeup of it. The first is, I believe in God the Father Almighty. They've been saying this creed for 1,800 years. The second heading, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. The third heading, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It is a deeply Trinitarian creed. And that's one of the things that Patrick was known for. He didn't want to convert them from one God to another or from no religion to religion. He was converting them to Trinitarian Christianity that held to the deity of the Son, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. And that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man and yet one person. He wasn't converting them to general religion. He was converting them to the Christian religion. And this is it. This is how you're connected to him. This is how you know you had exactly the same faith he had because he confessed this creed, and so do you. You know, we all have our backgrounds and our races and our countries of ancestry and everything. But I'll tell you, the way God measures it, the person that believes this creed with you, that's your brother and that's your sister. Nobody's going to care if you were French in heaven right? They're going to care if you were part of this body, this people, called by his name according to his purpose. Now notice that he says there, Jesus says there, all authority in heaven and earth has been granted to him. That means nobody has any authority that's valid, that's contrary to him. That's why I say, I know it's a big claim to say Jesus claimed the entire earth, but he didn't just claim part of it. He even says in the Bible that to save Israel alone was too small a thing. He was going after every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. And he gives this sign of baptism as a sign, an external, fallible sign of who's in and who's out. The real thing is the spirit in the heart. The external sign is the water being poured out. That's why we have a sign. That's why we have a church. Let me say something else about the system. This is not identical to the kingdom of heaven here. This is a facsimile. This is a visible representation. The way the water is a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit, this church is a visible manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. It does not mean that every one of you is a Christian. You know if you're a Christian because you know if you believe the gospel, right? As we look here, it is to look like the kingdom of heaven, but it's not identical. You can be a Christian in a church that's not, and you can be not a Christian in a church that is. So this fallible church through history is God's ordained means to do his labor and to do these baptisms and to do this evangelism. Uh, me and the kids are going to a concert tonight. It's a rock concert. It's a Jesus rock concert, though. It's right down the street at the, uh, what's that place? That big bar that looks like a barn. What is it? Yeah, Landerson. Uh, we're going to go over there, and there will be Christian music and stuff, right? And Anna wants to do some video of her, like, uh, interviewing people, asking them if they're a Christian, because it's interesting to talk to the people that aren't Christians, but they will come to that concert, right? I don't know all of your stories, but I know that all of you come from different backgrounds, and you might have come into the faith through something as silly and ridiculous as a Christian rock concert. I don't know. 
Some of you might have come in through some of those incredibly bad teaching ministries that are on TV at 2 o'clock in the morning because you heard the gospel and believed. Some of you might have found a tract sticking out of the side of a garbage can. Some of you might have been your grandmother or your grandfather. Even though your parents didn't hold the faith, it was planted in you early. Who knows how it came to you, but when it came to you, it came with power. All of the best fine-sounding arguments in the world will not make a Christian. I was on the radio for 16 years in Los Angeles doing apologetics ministry, refuting all kinds of stuff. If there's one thing I know, it's good arguments do not make a Christian. It might answer some of their concerns, but it doesn't actually cause anyone to believe anything. I've been all over the world. I've preached to all kinds of people. The power of the Spirit of God to convert a soul is what makes a person a Christian. He either brings them to spiritual life from spiritual death, or he does not. It's in his hands. But you are the means that he chooses to use to convert the world. I can promise you, in accord with Scripture, the entire world will be converted. One day, the entire planet Earth and the universe with it will all be Christian. Because you all know the end of the story, right? The end of the story is he's going to clean it out, and he's going to set up fresh shop, and all of the elements themselves will be consumed by fire and purified, and the entire earth will be Christian. So you knew from the beginning that's his plan. Now you just have to have faith that he will actually accomplish these things in history, right? I know you believe that he rose from the dead. Do you believe that he will actually be successful in what he rose from the dead for? which is to perfect all things in heaven and on earth and bring them together as one in Christ, the restoration of all things. So you all believe that eventually it's all going to be his, right? But do you believe that you have actually been given the capacity and the power and the authority to bring about and appropriate these things through history? That one of the reasons that you're alive is to go into all nations and teach them to obey everything that he's told you. That's why you're here. It's part of your ethos. It's part of your essence. It's part of your intellect. It's part of your emotions. That you would be able to share the gospel with another person and God would use that as a means to bring them into his kingdom. Born a baby, possibly of 60 or 70 years old. So this is the great commission and this is the commission for you. To do this great labor and to be a part of God's plan for the universe. Because you are promised that you will succeed at it because Christ is going to succeed at it in and through you. Amen? Lord God, our Father, as we look into your word today, we found these great things, Lord God, some of which are too wonderful for us, that we would actually be called to be a part of your evangelization of the world, and yet at the same time, you do promise us that if we go forth, Lord God, in the power of your spirit, not a word from our mouth will return void. Your spirit and your word are powerful enough to accomplish these things. No matter how weak we might be, no matter how fragile, no matter how poor our wording, no matter how tepid our holiness, Lord God, your power is sufficient. Your cross has been raised. You have died and risen again, and you will accomplish all your holy will. We thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our next song is in your green book or your red book, number 457.
please rise. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious song sung by flaming tongues of People of God, one of the strange facets of uh, this theology is the benediction. Because when you've heard something, it has to be proclaimed and stated that you actually receive it. So we actually do a blessing. I know that many of you are well acquainted with cursing, but this is a blessing. It's like the other side of that. With that, we believe that it's actually effective, a means of grace that the declaration by a mere fallible human mortal represents the blessing of God that will fall upon every one of you. And so it's not a prayer, and so don't look down. And don't be ashamed, because Christ has already accomplished great things for you. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Hey, buddy, how you doing? What's that?